0: Well, good morning, everyone. I'll be honest, I didn't know I would be preaching this morning, but thankfully I had a lesson ready, and I'm just so thankful. It's been probably about six months since I've been up here. Um, As has been mentioned, Jason is not feeling well this morning, so please keep him in your prayers. Uh, Aaron is in Hawaii uh, celebrating uh, the passing of Lizzie's grandfather, so he's not here, so you're all stuck with me this morning. So I hope, I pray that something from today's lesson will stand out to you, that will talk to you, um, and will just let you leave here today feeling a little bit more edified and ready to take on the week ahead of you. So today we're going to be talking about Peter. And Peter is someone that I think we all tend to relate to a little bit. Peter is someone who is bold in his faith, is someone who is ready to jump out of a boat, is ready to cut off the ear of someone who's trying to get at Jesus. And yet there's another part of Peter that we tend to look at and we tend to talk about and we don't let Peter forget about it. Peter is a flawed yet faithful follower of Jesus. And I think if we get nothing else from today, it's that if someone says that about you, you must be doing something right. Because we're all flawed. We've all failed. We all have something in our life that we wish would have gone differently. But the most important part of that statement is the yet. Flawed yet faithful follower of Jesus. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. Not about what Peter did for himself, but what Jesus did in restoring Peter after his denial of Jesus in the temple courts. That's what we're going to be looking at today. And so as we get started, I want to start with a poem. And I think this poem is going to help us set the scene. And the poem is called, And God Said If. And I want us to focus in on that, and we'll come back to this at the end of the poem. But I want us to listen to this poem and really put ourselves into this moment. It says, If you never felt pain, then how would you know that I'm a healer? If you never went through difficulty, how would you know that I'm a deliverer? If you never had a trial, how could you call yourself an overcomer? If you never felt sadness, how would you know that I'm a comforter? If you, ever made, if you never made a mistake, how would you know that I'm forgiving? If you never were in trouble, how would you know that I will come to your rescue? If you never were broken, then how would you know that I can make you whole? If you never had a problem, how would you know that I can solve them? If you never had any suffering, then how would you know what I went through? If you never went through the fire, then how would you become if I gave you all things, how would you appreciate them? If I never corrected you, how would you know that I love you? If you had all power, then how would you learn to depend on me? And this last line, it's up here on the screen. If your life was perfect, then what would you need me for? Let's pause and consider that last line for a moment here. If your life was perfect, then what would you need me for? You see, this sermon is a sermon about a failure so shocking that we still talk about it 2,000 years later. And there are really two parts to Peter's story. It's his threefold denial of Jesus the night that he was arrested, and then how Christ forgave and restored him. And the first part depends wholly on Peter, and the second wholly on Jesus. Peter was in charge of his own failure, but Christ took charge of restoring him. And behind this story lies a wonderful liberating hope, and I want us all to focus in on this for just a second, is that failure is an event, not a destiny. You see, this is good news because we all fail sooner or later. And if we are honest with ourselves, we all fail over and over again. It's not just a one-time thing. And as Peter's story abundantly proves, it's not our initial failure that ruins us. It's what happens next that matters. Failure doesn't mean that you've blown everything. It means you've had some hard lessons to learn. It doesn't mean you're a permanent loser. It means you aren't as smart as you thought you were. It doesn't mean you should give up. It means you need the Lord to show you the next step. It doesn't mean that God has abandoned you. It actually means that God has a better plan for you. And I think the beauty of the story is it doesn't really matter how great your failure is. We've all failed, and so we can relate to this story. We can understand where Peter may have gone wrong, what he might have been feeling, and we can put ourselves into Peter's shoes. It doesn't matter the size of the mess-up. The fact that there is a mess-up is what makes this so relatable to us. And when we have failed, especially when we have failed those we love the most, our mind becomes a whirlwind of emotions, embarrassment, anger, fear, shame, despair. We feel dirty and unworthy because we acted foolishly. When we have hurt someone deeply, we want to know one thing and one thing only, and that thing is if they still love us or if we have blown everything. That's immediately where our mind goes to. Will they ever forgive me? Can I ever forgive myself? You see, Peter never forgot what happened when he denied Christ. He didn't forget those feelings. He didn't forget what it made him feel. And so, scholars say, and tradition says, that when Peter would ever hear a rooster crow, that he would weep. Or that at the time that he denied Jesus, that he would wake up and he would pray because he just felt this immense guilt and shame. But see, that's not the story we're telling today. Because if the story ended there, there's no hope in it. There's no hope in the story of Peter if we leave off with him and the last thing we see is a fallen, disgraced disciple of Jesus who ran away at the first moment of trouble. But it doesn't end there. You see, the story is about how Jesus restores his fallen disciple, and that's the beauty of the story of Peter, because that's what we should be taking away from this story. Not that Peter messed up, because who among us haven't, but how Jesus went out of his way to bring Peter back into the fold and to say, don't worry about that. It was all part of the plan, and there's something so much better, so much greater for you than that denial of me. And so today, what we're going to be talking about is we're going to be talking about the five ways that Jesus restores Peter. The ways that Jesus goes about bringing Peter back into the fold and putting him back on the right track and sending him back out into the world for Jesus. But before we do that, I want to read this account from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 26, starting in verse 69. And I want us to put ourselves into this moment. And really look at what it is that Peter does. And we'll we'll look a little bit more at that here in a second. But Matthew chapter 26, starting in verse 69. says, Now Peter was sitting out in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him. You also were with Jesus of Galilee, she said. But he denied it before them all. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. Then he went out to the gateway, where another servant girl saw him, and said to the people there, Hey! This fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. And he denied it again with an oath. I don't know the man. After a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, Surely you were one of them. Your accent gives you away. Then he began to call down curses. And he swore to them, I don't know the man. And immediately a rooster crowed. And then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And he wept, he went outside and wept bitterly. Let that sink in for a moment. It's one thing to say, oh no, that's that's not me. It's that that's not it. Okay, well then it happens a second time. Okay, no, 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 really, that's not me. That, you, you've got it wrong. And then the third time, Peter doesn't even just say, no, that's not me. He starts going off on this people. He says, it says that he began to call down curses and he swore to them, I don't know the man. And just like Jesus said in that moment, a rooster crowed and Peter remembered what Jesus said. And all of the guilt, all of the embarrassment, all of the shame, everything that if you put yourself into that moment, you probably would have felt too. Because remember, Peter is this bold disciple of Jesus, not only amongst those who are not close with Jesus, but amongst the disciples, he was boastful. He was like, I'm great. I am the one among Jesus. And you just have to imagine that this was just this moment of, oh my gosh, what have I done? So what did Jesus do? What did Jesus do to bring Peter back into the fold, to to forgive him of this and to re-enlist him, to send him back out and to say, go and make more disciples? So there are five things that Jesus does. The first thing that Jesus does is he sent for him. Then he meets with him and then Jesus challenges him. He reinstates him and then he re-enlists him. And we're going to talk about each one of these a little bit more in detail. But I wanted to lay these out for you to see what Jesus is doing. Because any one of these things, if you take it out, it kind of takes away from the power of what Jesus is doing through Peter. So let's look at this first one that Jesus sent for him. Now, when the women arrived at the tomb early on Sunday morning, an angel announced the good news and instructed them to, in Mark chapter 16, verse 7, go tell his disciples and Peter. Now what does that mean his disciples and Peter? What cuz very clearly there's a reason why this is specifically put here in the text. You see Peter's denial has separated him from the other disciples. No doubt he wondered to himself many times, what am I now? Am I a traitor or am I a disciple. Now, Peter may have failed in the upper room, but Jesus sent for him. Jesus, uh, just a few hours earlier, Peter had said, Lord, you will never wash my feet, in John chapter 13, verse 8. And then he later bragged about his courage. He bragged that if everyone else deserted Jesus, he would never desert him. How wrong he was, and how quickly Peter ate his own words. You see, under pressure, this bold apostle turned to butter. He just fell apart at the seams. Peter may have failed with Malchus. This is the prison guard um, in the, the garden that goes to arrest Jesus. Peter pulls out his sword and chops off the guy's ear. And Jesus immediately rebukes him and tells him, Put away your sword. This is how it's supposed to happen. Peter may have failed in the courtyard, but Jesus sent for him. We read this story just a couple minutes ago where Peter doubled down, tripled down on what he was saying and just denied Jesus so vehemently that I can't even begin to imagine how awful Peter must have felt. The last words of that text that we read were, and he wept bitterly. That's where we leave Peter. But you see, after all of that, the risen Christ sins for him. He doesn't write Peter off as a permanent failure. He doesn't put him in the biggest loser category. Jesus still has plans for Peter. Plans to give him a hope and a future. Plans to give him a second chance. You see, that's the beauty of this. That Jesus goes out of his way to bring Peter back. The second thing that Jesus does is that he met with Peter. Where did Peter go after he denied Christ? You see, the answer is, is we don't really know for certain because the Bible doesn't say. But we can surmise, we can come to the conclusion that Peter did what probably most of us would have done when we've blown it big time. When we have made a huge mistake, the last thing we want to do is be around other people especially the ones we know the best and that love us the most. We don't want to be around that because it reminds us of the mistakes that we've made. And having let them down, we don't want to see them at all. But here's the thing. Sin separates us from God and from God's people. Sin isolates us so that the devil can convince that having made such a stupid mistake that no one wants to be around us again, that no one could ever possibly Forgive us. And so we spend our hours in a miserable prison of self imposed solitary confinement. And I think that's what happened to Peter that weekend. Wherever he was, he must have felt alone in the world. And the last thing we are told is that after Jesus looked at him, Peter wept bitterly. We're not told where Peter was during Jesus' crucifixion on Friday or during the burial later that afternoon. And we can guess that he probably retreated to some lonely spot there to replay those awful memories over and over again in his mind, asking himself, why? Why did I do it? What made me think I was so much better than everyone else? How could I have been so stupid? And what does Jesus think of me now? Now we find an answer to that last question in the fact that Jesus made a special appearance to Peter sometime on Easter Sunday. And we don't know where or when this appearance took place, but we do know that this meeting happened. Because the Bible tells us twice. First, in Luke chapter 24, verse 34, it says, "...it is true the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon." And then again in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verses 4 through 5, it says he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. He appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. And I'm honing in on that for a second because I'm especially heartened that Jesus met with Peter before he met with the rest of the disciples. Let me ask, aren't you glad about that too? Aren't you glad that Jesus took this time to go see Peter first? Not only does Jesus send for Peter, but he goes and meets with him before he meets with the others. And what amazing grace, what a gracious thing that Jesus is doing. There is no public humiliation for Peter in front of the other disciples. Since Peter denied Christ, things must have been first settled between the two of them. With wisdom and grace, Christ comes after Peter and doesn't wait for him to make the first move. So Jesus sends for Peter, and then he meets with him. The next thing that Jesus does for Peter is he challenges him. And we come to John chapter 21 and let me set the scene for you for this passage. So it's an evening on the Sea of Galilee. And not, this is not long after the resurrection. Now Peter and six other disciples have spent the night fishing and have caught nothing. And in the morning, a man calls from the shore, telling them to put their nets on the other side of the boat and they will catch fish. Now, let's just stop there for a second. These men have been through a lot. Jesus has been crucified. They've been scattered. They've come back together. They're on the sea. But remember, these men are fishermen. They have knowledge. This is what they did for a living. And imagine you've spent the entire night out on the lake. You've caught absolutely nothing. And then you're sitting there as morning's coming. And for all you know, some smart aleck comes up to the shore of the lake and goes, Hey, have you tried the other side of the boat? It's the same water. It's not like they've gone to a different lake. These men are sitting there going, right, okay. So in John chapter 21, verses five through six, this is what we just talked about. It says, he called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, well, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. But what happened? It says, when they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Other accounts tell us it's 153 fish. So many fish that they could not possibly drag the net up on their own. Now, there's a lot of beauty in this story. And I think it's interesting to look at because you have to understand where the disciples are for this to be impactful. To understand why the disciples who had been through all this, who had been fishing all night, who were fishermen why did they decide to listen to Jesus? Because the, the text does not tell us that they recognized who Jesus was until after they had thrown their nets over the side of the boat. It was at that moment, it was at that moment that Peter recognized it was Jesus, that he jumped out of the boat and he swam to shore. Why did these men listen to this man who could have just been a smart aleck? Why did they choose to throw their nets on the other side of the boat? You see, it's because They needed to have this moment of failure. If Christ was watching the disciples from the shore all night, why didn't he speak up sooner? Why allow his men to toil in frustration for hours at night? And the answer is that the men needed to fail. You see, failure in this case was a necessary prerequisite to eventual success. And if that unidentified man had spoken up sooner, they would have doubtlessly rejected his offering of advice. They would have said, what do you know? We're professional fishermen. We know where to find fish. We spent years fishing this lake. But let the night pass. Let the sun come up. Let the disciples deal with all of the anguish and just frustration that they've dealt with, and now, now they're ready to listen to Jesus' voice. So it is the same with all of us. When we fail, when we have these moments of frustration where we just can't figure out why something is happening, that's the moment that we are willing to listen to the voice of the Lord. I like what Bill Gates says. He says, Success is a lousy teacher. It makes smart people think they can't lose. Now, I think the disciples needed to fail so that they could learn to depend on Christ for their victories. And sometimes it takes shameful failure for us finally to wake up and see our need for Christ. And when we read John chapter 21, verses 1 through 14, we should connect in our minds with the account in Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, where Jesus tells Peter to go out into the deep and let down his nets for a catch. And despite his doubts, Peter follows Christ's command and ends up catching so many fish, they filled up two boats. And so now we've come full circle, and the question is the same on both sides occasions. Is it the same Lord that asks us the same question every day? It is. And what's the question? It says, will we obey even when we think that we have a better way? Will we obey even when the way forward seems unclear? Will we obey when our instinct tells us to do something different? Will we obey even when we feel like we have failed to a point where no one could possibly love us like God loves us? And so this is the challenge that Jesus puts out before Peter. The fourth thing that Jesus does in restoring Peter is that he reinstates him. In John chapter 21, we pick up in verse 15 through 17. And again, the third time, he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Now, Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all these things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. Now, Peter and Jesus had this conversation around a charcoal fire. And the particular Greek word for charcoal fire is only used in only one other place in the New Testament. In John 18, 18, to refer to the charcoal fire in the courtyard where Peter denied the Lord. By one fire, he says, I don't know you. By another fire, he says, Lord, you know I love you. By one charcoal fire, he denied Christ. By one charcoal fire, he is restored By Christ. Now, several questions come to my mind as I read this passage. First, why did Jesus ask Peter three times, Do you love me? The answer is because Peter had denied him three times. Why did he do this publicly? Because Jesus denied him publicly. Now the other disciples needed to hear Peter openly declare his love for Christ. Without hearing those words, their doubts would have lingered about Peter. Now, the man who had been so boastful, so sure of himself, so confident of his own courage, is now thoroughly humbled. Jesus' first question of, do you love me more than these, was a subtle reminder of his previous boast to be more loyal than any of the other disciples. And in his reply, Peter declares his love for Christ, but he refuses to compare himself with anyone else. And as painful as this was, it was absolutely necessary. And Jesus is cleaning the wound so that it might be properly healed. He is getting rid of Peter's guilt and shame by dealing with it openly. Now let's consider for a second what Christ doesn't do in this circumstance. He doesn't try to make Peter feel guilty. He doesn't humiliate him publicly. He doesn't ask him, hey, are you sorry for what you did? He doesn't make him promise to do better. He just asks one question. Do you love me? And once we have hurt someone we love, it's hard to look them in the face and it's harder to be questioned about our true commitment. To look someone in the face that we've hurt, that we've denied, and to look them in the face and tell them what is your true commitment. How could you have done that? What were you thinking? Do you even love me at all? These are not the questions that Jesus is asking Peter, but the questions must be asked, and the answers must be given, and they must be repeated for the truth To be fully told. Now, Peter needed to see the enormity of his sin and needed to hear Jesus ask these searching questions. Only then can he grasp the magnitude of Christ's forgiveness. You see, years ago, a friend shared this thought. They said, The truth will set you free, but it will hurt you first. And often, we don't get better because we don't want to face the hard truth about what we have said to others and what we've done. But until we face the truth about ourselves, we can never be free. And there are three qualifications for those who would serve the Lord. The first is love. The second is love. And the third, if you haven't guessed it by now, is love. Those are the only qualifications that are for those who follow the Lord. It's love. First, we love, and then we serve. First, we love, and then we speak. First, we love, and then we lead. And when Christ asks the question the the third time, Peter's heart is grieved, and he blurts out, Lord, you know all these things. And with those words, Peter renounces all his self-confidence. On that fateful night in the upper room, he thought he knew himself, but he didn't. Now he's not so sure. He doesn't even trust his own heart. Instead, trust in the Lord who knows all things. And this is a mighty step forward in his Christian growth. It's a great advance to come to the place where you can say with conviction, my trust is in the Lord Alone, And sometimes we have to hit rock bottom and able to be ordered to say that. That my trust is in the Lord and the Lord alone. So, did it work? Did the painful surgery produce the desired healing? Yes, it did. Peter never denied Christ again. And just a few days later on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, fully restored, he stood in front of the temples and the courts and preached a mighty gospel sermon to the very men who had crucified Jesus. And do you know what Acts chapter 2 says? It says, and thousands were added to the church that very day. Peter has been reinstated, he's been challenged, he's met with Jesus, Jesus called for him. All of these things have brought Peter out of this pit of despair into this amazing man for God who is going out into the temple courts and is preaching a sermon so powerful that 3,000 people came to Christ that very day. And the old Peter was gone forever and a new man was born when Jesus restored his fallen disciples. The last thing that Jesus does for Peter is he re-enlisted him. Early church tradition says that Peter was likely crucified upside down in Rome because he said that he was not worthy to be crucified in the same manner as his Lord In John chapter 21, verses 18 through 19, it says, It is remarkable that Jesus skips the rest of Peter's life and concentrates only on how we will die. Although the although he failed in the past, in the end he will glorify God through his actions. I love this quote from Erwin Lutzer. It says, God is able to forget our past. Why can't we? He throws our sins into the depths of the sea and puts up a sign on the shore which reads, No Fishing. God has cast all of our sins aside. We may not be Peter. We may have never stood at a fire and denied Jesus three times so vehemently. But at some point in our lives, we have all been Peter. We've all made that mistake. We've all felt that guilt, that shame, that emotional whirlwind that comes with those decisions that leave us wondering, what does God think of me now? But the example of Peter shows us that God does not think anything differently of you. Jesus came to this world to die for our sins, to wash us clean of those sins. And as Erwin Lutzer says, he throws our sins into the depths of the sea and puts up a sign on the shore which reads, no fishing. And so as we come to the end of this message, I want to revisit this question that I mentioned earlier. Will we obey even when we think we have a better way? Are we going to be like Peter? Are we going to be the Peter of old where he was so full of pride, where he felt like he knew what he was doing and he trusted more in himself? Or are we going to be like the new Peter, The Peter who trusts solely in Jesus and Jesus alone, knowing full well that our sins have been cast off into the depths of the sea where no one can get them, no one can bring them back up because of the blood of Jesus. And so as we end today, I want to remind you of this, that failure is an event, not a destiny. Failure does not define who you are. It's Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. So as we end here today, if there's anything that we can do for you, if there's any prayers that you have, any need, I want to invite you to see myself, see any of the staff, any of the elders. We'll be happy to help you. If you haven't put God on in baptism, we have a baptistry ready right here. There's no reason to wait. Just like Peter became new because of the blood of Jesus, so can we. If there's anything that we can do for you, we want to invite you to come forward or find one of the staff members or elders as together we stand and sing this last song. When darkness his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. in every heart. High-